Well, there was a little girl named Susie who normally was very sweet, but one day she got into a fight with her best friend. And as the two mothers came running over to separate the girls, Susie's mom said to the other one, I don't know what got into Susie, why she pulled Hannah's hair. Uh, the devil must have made her do it. Now, Susie's standing there, and she hears this, and she said, Well, Mommy, Satan suggested I pull her hair. Uh, but then she added proudly, Kicking Hannah in the shins was my own idea. <laughs> you know, when people do something wrong, we like to say, The devil made me do it. But the reality is we're actually pretty good at doing it on our own, aren't we? In fact, that's what the Bible tells us today as we turn uh, to James chapter 1. I invite you to turn there to James chapter 1, where we're going to be looking at verses 13 through 15. James 1.13 begins by saying, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. If you've been with us as we've been going through this series in the book of James, you'll recall that in the first part of chapter 1, we've seen how he was talking about the various trials that we as Christians endure. The Greek word that we have been looking at there is perismos, and this word is defined as trials. Now, that same Greek word is used here again in verse 12, where we find the word temptations mentioned. And this is actually another meaning of this word. There's trials, as we've seen in the sense of God's refining process for us as believers. You'll recall as we bear up under and abide under the load, it develops spiritual muscles and maturity. There's the refining process where the dross is burned away and the preciousness of metal Uh, the genuineness of the gold or other precious metal is brought out. Well, here, James uses this word to speak about the temptations that we face. And whenever we face a trial, there is actually a temptation that comes with it. When you think of that first process that we've talked about, whenever we endure a trial, there is a temptation to escape it. There is the desire to short-cycle God's process and to get out from underneath the pain or the, the things that we're going through. Another type of way that temptation comes with trials is uh, we lose sight not only of the process, but even of God himself. Those who are going through financial difficulties will sometimes question God's care or provision. When a loved one is sick or has died, we're tempted to question God's love for us. When we look at the suffering of the righteous and the poor, when the wicked in the world seem to prosper, we're tempted to question God's justice and maybe even his very existence. Warren Wiersbe says, if we are not careful, the testing on the outside may become temptations on the inside. When our circumstances are difficult, we may find ourselves complaining against God, questioning his love and resisting his will. When we as Christians come in contact with perismas, trials or temptations, There is the pressure that seeks to escape from it. Other times the temptation brings with it the the desire to indulge in that that pleasure. And just as a wrong reaction to testing will hinder our spiritual growth and maturity as we short-cycle God's maturing process, so too will giving in to the pressure of a temptation where our walk with God is damaged. 
Whatever the kind of temptation we're talking about, what we're told here in verse 13 is, let no one say when he is tempted that I am being tempted by God. For God himself cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. You know, we live in a world that likes to blame others, right? Have you ever noticed how people are always pointing the finger at somebody else or justifying themselves? When something goes wrong and you talk to an individual about it, they say, well, you know, I can't help myself. It's because of the family I was raised in. Or they'll say, well, you know where I come from, that's just the way that everybody does it. Or the big blanket one is we blame God. Well, God made me this way. He, he created me with this desire, and we use it to justify our sin or to, to push the blame off on God. You know, blaming God isn't anything new. It goes all the way back to the beginning. When you look at Genesis chapter 3, where the first man and the first woman were here walking the earth in sinless perfection of the world as it had been created, they sinned. You recall that God had said, you can eat from anything in the garden except for one thing, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And Adam and Eve were tempted, and they sinned by disobeying, and they suddenly realized, you know, we're naked. And the scripture says they hid themselves. And God, as he was coming through the garden, came and he said, why are you hiding yourselves? And they said, well, we're naked. And he said, well, who told you that? And God knew what they had done. He knew they had sinned. And do you remember how uh, Adam, the first man, responds? He says in Genesis 3.12, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree and I ate. Come on, Adam, man up. <laughs> I mean, just say what happened. You know what? I blew it, God. I sinned. I disobeyed you. But no, what did he do? He blames his wife, Eve gave it to me. And you know what, God? It's your fault because you gave her to me. So really, you're the cause. You're the fault. And then what did Eve do? She points the finger too. Well, you know, the serpent made me do it. The devil made me do it. And what we see here in the scripture is James says, when we sin, we need to put the blame where it belongs, which is squarely on ourselves. Yes, there are external factors out there, family of origin issues, bad breaks, bad people, hard things that happen to us. But ultimately, when we sin, it is our choice. It is how we respond and react to the circumstances around us. And when these things come our way, the Bible tells us that while God is not the one tempting us, he does understand what we face. If you've read Hebrews 4.15, it tells us this, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Our high priest is Jesus Christ. And it says Jesus understands what we go through. He, too, was tempted. Now, maybe you're reading Hebrews 4.15 saying, wait a minute, didn't just James 1.13 tell us God cannot be tempted by evil? So how, how do these two reconcile themselves? Well, what we need to remember is when God left his throne in heaven and took on flesh and blood, Philippians describes the great kenosis, this incarnation of Christ, and it says he remained fully God and yet he was fully man. And so you have the, the full character and deity of God, which is holy. He has no inclination to evil. He, he does not sin. He cannot be tempted by sin, James tells us the truth. But at the same time, Jesus was fully man. 
the mystery of the God-man incarnation that happened. And Jesus was fully man. Just like you and I, he had all the limitations of the flesh. He suffered thirst. He hungered. He knew what weariness and fatigue was. He knew what desires of the flesh were and how he could short-cycle the process and, and satisfy them. And this is what it means why it says he could sympathize, a word that means to feel or suffer with us. But how do these two come together? Well, you can picture in your mind uh, a massive boulder, an enormous boulder, make it of the hardest substance that exists in the world. And it is, it is there on a seashore where the pounding waves of the ocean are, are, are you know, hitting this rock. Now, the rock is getting wet, so Jesus is being tempted by the sin, and yet it is immovable. It can't be, uh, it cannot respond. God cannot be one who would sin. This is the two things. Now, I know you're thinking, well, you know, given enough time, the rock will erode, and therefore the character, well, no, the character of God uh, cannot be tempted by holiness. It's an analogy trying to explain a very difficult process here. But the truth of the matter is God cannot be tempted by evil, and he does not use evil to tempt us. What James is telling us in verse 13 is, he says, let no one say he is being tempted by God. You see that word by? The word by here is the Greek preposition apo, and uh, it refers to the source of origin. So what it's saying is God is not the one who creates the temptation. Now there's another Greek preposition, hypo, And this preposition designates the direct agent of something. And in Matthew chapter 4, we see where Jesus was taken into the wilderness to be tempted by God. And as you read that passage, you see how he was tempted. And there, hypo is used because the one doing the tempting was Satan. He was the direct agent. God is not the one tempting us. What is being used here is while God may test or prove his servants in order to strengthen their faith, he never seeks to have us sin. You see, Satan seeks to destroy us while God seeks to strengthen us. Let me illustrate it this way from the Bible. In Luke chapter 22 and verses 31 through 32, Jesus told the apostle Peter, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat, but I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you, when once you have turned again, you will strengthen your brothers. Your brothers. You see, what happened, as you recall, is, uh, Satan came after Peter. And Peter ultimately fell to temptation. He sought to escape uh, possible imprisonment and death by denying Jesus. He fell to the sin, the temptation to escape. But Jesus, as you know, restored him fully. But what Jesus said is, look, Satan wants to destroy you. I'm praying that God will strengthen you. When it comes to prayer in Matthew chapter 6 in verse 13 and Luke eleven four, we find what's called the Lord's Prayer. There Jesus taught the disciples to pray. And in that prayer, he told us to pray that we would, Lord, lead us not into temptation. Now, that doesn't mean we have to ask God not to tempt us. Because again, James has already said God doesn't tempt anyone. But what we are doing there is we're asking God not to let us come under the sway of temptation that will overpower us and lead us to sin. Let me explain it a little bit further. 
The answer to that prayer, we see God's provision and answer in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, which tells us no temptation has seized you except what is common to man. It says, and God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out, a way of escape, the Greek word says, that you can stand up under it. The image that we are given here is of that fire escape door up front here. If this room were on fire, you know what you do is you run to that door, hit those panic bars, and you exit to the safety outside of the burning building. And what happens is in those times where we face temptation, there is always a way out. We are to take the way out of the burning building, not like a moth that is attracted to the flame that gets destroyed as it's drawn into it. Oscar Wilde once said, I can, I can resist anything except temptation. And for many of us, what we try to do when a temptation comes is we think, you know, I'm going to go toe-to-toe with this. I'm going to stand up to it. And as we try to do that, we get knocked out or we get drawn into the sin. One day there was a mother who walked into her kitchen and she found her daughter up on a chair with her hand in the cookie jar and, and another cookie in her mouth. And the mother goes, honey, what are you doing? And the little girl tried to defend herself, and she said, Mommy, uh, I just came up here to smell the cookies, and one of them got caught in my teeth. (laughs) Is that what we do? Do we see a temptation? We say, you know, I I just need to get a little closer to it. I need to examine it. I I, I need to, uh, you know, study and smell it. And then we wonder, why are we drawn into it? There was a case of a little boy whose mother told him, I don't want you going swimming. You know that you shouldn't be doing that. Well, a little while later, he came in the door soaking wet. And the mother said, what did you do? And he said, well, Mom, I was over there. She said, get out of those wet clothes. Change right now. And as he was stripping off his clothes to throw them in the wash, uh, she noticed he's wearing his bathing suit. And she said, what are you doing with your bathing suit on? And he said, well, Mom, I put this on just in case I was tempted when I walked by the pool. (laughs) Do we pre-plan to sin like that? Do we say, you know, I'm just going to smell it. I'm just going to look at it. I'm just going to linger around it. And then we wonder, why did we fall into it? What the Bible tells us is we are to flee temptation. We are to take the way of escape when it comes. James 1.14 tells us, but each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lusts. The, the picture here, there's two vivid Greek words used. When it says carried or drawn away, the word was used originally of a hunter who would set a trap and would bait the trap, and the animal would be drawn into it and captured. The other word that means enticed, that's translated as enticed, literally spoke of a fisherman baiting a hook where he took and, and hid the hook, a, a lure that, that looks so appetizing, so flashy and gaudy that fish are attracted to it. There's a hidden hook in it. And this is the picture. And we're told that we have an enemy in the world called Satan, the deceiver, the destroyer, the father of lies. He has all kinds of titles. And what he does is he seeks to entice, to lure us, he, he drops these things in front of us and they flash by and we go, ooh, that's exciting. I, I should, you know, go look at it a little closer. And as we bite into whatever it is, we suddenly find this hidden hook. 
And as it rips into our mouth, we're ripped out of the thing, and we find ourselves as a, uh, the main course of a meal or hanging on a wall as a trophy. We have an enemy who's not some barefooted little boy with a cane pole who's walking down a back dirt road. You can picture a tournament pro who has the tricked-out bass boat with GPS, um, you know, every depth finder, every little fish finder, all the fully stocked wheel um, tackle box and, and bait wells are full of all these things. And, and he's after us. He's, he's a hunter seeking his prey. And friends, with a fish finder, he knows where we are. He, he's got those spots marked on his GPS. He knows where he's had a big strike in the past, where we like to feed, where we go. And he's there dropping various lures. And when I go fishing, you know, I know that sometimes one lure will, will work and another one won't. I've got a tackle box full of different things. And sometimes we look at something and it's enticing and we think, oh, that's a, a nice neon power worm. And really what we find is we bite into it is it's stink bait with a big treble hook. And it captures us, and suddenly we're the trophy on the wall for our enemy. A moment ago, I mentioned this Greek preposition, hypo, which speaks of direct agency. And here in James 1.14, he uses this word. As he speaks of what it is that causes us to sin, what is it? It is the internal desire within us. It's not even the lure per se that is in the world that Satan uses. It is our desire within us that responds to the lure. We, we can think of it this way. Have you ever seen what happens when you drop a Mentos in a Diet Coke? Now, let me give a disclaimer here. You know, you always hear, don't try this at home. Uh, well, kids and maybe even some of the adults here, don't try this at home unless you have permission of your parents. Don't go home and say, well, Pastor Roger said an application point of the sermon is to drop a Mentos in a Diet Coke. Have you ever seen what happens? I'm going to show you a video in a moment, but let me set it up for you. Because what happens is you can think of your life as being a big bottle of Diet Coke. And the Mentos is this lure, this sin. And what God says is when we open up ourselves to this external thing and we respond to it, when this lure that Satan has comes in contact with our sin nature, uh, this is what we see happening. Do you want to clean that mess up? You know, it's fun for a moment, isn't it? You do a little bit, and that's exciting. Let's do a little more. And before you know it, you're full-blown into the sin, right? And what happens is, as our sin nature is activated, James calls this our lust. Now, we read a word like lust, and we immediately think, well, that's a sexual lust, and it's a bad thing. The word used here literally just means a strong desire. It's really a neutral concept. But again, when it comes in contact with this temptation, then what happens to us is we get this explosive mess. And it's just everywhere, and it's sticky, and, and you know somebody has to clean it up. What 1 John 1, 2 through 15 tells us about lust is this. He says, do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh... 
and the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. You see, God has given us natural desires, hunger, thirst, the desire to sleep. These kind of desires are not bad in and of themselves. But when they are taken to an extreme, when they are abused or used in a wrong way, they become sinful lust. Food can lead to gluttony. Thirst can lead to drunkenness. We can uh, have sleep turns to slothfulness. And this is how the world system that Satan uses works. It appears to this normal God-given desire, which in and of itself is a good thing. We eat and drink and sleep for the health of our bodies. Uh, sex is great for intimacy in a right context of a relationship and for procreation and, and things that God designed it for. But outside of those things, suddenly they become sinful lusts. We abuse them as these desires are fulfilled in forbidden ways. You can look at what we just read there in 1 John 2 and compare it to how Satan tempted Eve. As you look at Genesis 3, 6, it says, When the woman saw the tree was good for food, that's the lust of the flesh, and that it was a delight to the eyes, the lust of the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, the pride of life, she took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Now, remember that Satan's desire, his goal is to destroy us. He has these traps set. He has these lures, not to give us good things. He wants to hook us. He wants to trap us. This is his design as he takes God's desires and corrupts them. Now, the good news is, as we face our enemy, friends, he's been fishing the world since the beginning of time. He's good at what he does. But the advantage we have, we have many, but one of them is that we know how he operates. 2 Corinthians 2.11 tells us we are not ignorant of his schemes. The word schemes is the Greek word methodia. We get our English word methods from it. We know how he operates. We find it again in Ephesians 6.11 where we're told to stand firm against the schemes, the methodia of the devil. The word denotes that which is cunning, which is who Satan is. He's the deceiver, the father of lies. There in Ephesians 6, we're told that God has given us the full armor of God to stand firm against the enemy. And a part of that armor is the word of God. And it is the word of God that Jesus used to combat Satan. When he was drawn into the, the wilderness to be tempted, you can read Matthew chapter 4 or Luke chapter 4 and see how Satan went about trying to get Jesus to sin. He took the word of God and he twisted it. He said, doesn't the scripture say this? And he misapplied it. Now, Jesus, being God and knowing the word, being the word himself, John 1.1 1, 1 says, was able to combat and, and, and say, Satan, you're using the word wrongly. This is what the word really says. And each time he countered the blow of Satan and defeated the temptations. Now, if you look in your Bible at Genesis chapter 2 and verses 16 through 17, it tells us that this is exactly how Satan, his method of attack against the first man and woman, worked. As you look at Genesis two sixteen through 17, it says, The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but... From the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you shall surely die. Do you see that verse? Do you see what God's word says? Now, if you look at Genesis 3.1, look at what Satan does with it. 
Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? Did you catch it? Did you see the subtle twist? You see, what he does is he says, How unfair is God? God puts you in the midst of this beautiful garden with all this great stuff. The trees that are desirable and the, the fruit and, and everything. And what did God say? You can't have any of it. Is that what God said? No, God said you can eat from any tree in the whole place except for one. Just one. Why? Did you notice what Satan conveniently left out? Because when you disobey and eat from this, you will die. See, God said, there's a consequence I'm protecting you from. I have lots of good stuff I want you to have. This method of temptation is still being used by Satan today, isn't it? Satan has society in the world telling us, God is so unfair. He's such a prude. He tells you not to have sex. He tells you not to enjoy the good things in the world. Is that what God says? No. Read Song of Solomon, chapter 5, verse 1. There he says, of sex, intimacy. Friends, eat, drink, imbibe deeply, O lovers. God says, go for it. I made it. I created sex to be enjoyed. Within the context of a committed marriage relationship, of a husband and a wife. Why? Because God's approved, because he's mean, because he's withholding good stuff from us? No. Because he wants the best for us. He says, when you take of something I've given you and you abuse that desire, if you try to fulfill it in the wrong way, you end up with sexually transmitted diseases, unwanted pregnancies, broken hearts as you're used and abused by people and cast aside for the next lust that they have. And what God says is, I want the best for you. I've set it up in a context for you to enjoy and be blessed by the things that I have for you. I want you to look over at James chapter 1 and verses 16 and 17 for a moment. Next week, Pastor Michael's going to cover these verses more in depth, but I want you to see what it says here. Because as Satan comes with his method, his scheme of trying to tell us, God is so unfair, he's, he's withholding stuff from you. Look at what James tells us. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. He says, God isn't trying to withhold good things from you. He wants you to have the best. He gives good gifts, perfect gifts. He has great stuff for you, not the bargains that Satan offers you in the world. Satan says, hey, I've got a great bargain for you. And you get into it and you find out this thing has, has all kinds of hidden costs and consequences that come. And that bargain suddenly costs you immensely. Now, we can choose to reject what God has for us. We can go after what Satan and the world offers. And when we do, look at what James 1.15 tells us will happen. Then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. George Orwell um, tells of a time he was sitting out on his back patio. And he was eating breakfast, and he had jam on, on this plate with his bread, and he was going to spread that in a minute. But he said this wasp came flying down, and it buzzed the table, and it landed on this plate. 
and it, and it started to go after the jam, and he kept shooing the thing away, but it just kind of flit, and it'd come back, and, and finally, it just stood there. He'd wave at it, and it wouldn't even move, because it was, it was just sucking this jam up. It was so enamored by the, the sweet stuff that it had found. And Orwell says he took his butter knife, and, and he reached over, and you know where a wasp body is kind of connected? There's that thin little area. And he says he took his butter knife, and he just kind of cut the wasp in half. And he said as he did that, he was amazed that the wasp did not try to flee or escape, but it, it, it just kept sucking up the jam, which now he says was seeping out the backside of the wasp. Ooh, I hope you remember that picture vividly. Because, friends, that's what your lust does. We get so enamored in it. We get so fixated on it. We're, we're, we're just fulfilling our desire and we're forgetting the consequence of death. Here was a wasp that had suddenly suffered a fatal cut and it was oblivious because it was so enamored with its lust. And this is the picture that James paints for us. He, he uses the Greek word conceived. It's a combination of two words, sin, not S-I-N like sin, but S-Y-N, and then lambano. These words together mean to take together. Again, it's the picture of our sin nature and this external temptation. And when they come together, he says there is conception. He uses the picture of childbirth. And he says when lust is conceived, it doesn't produce new life. There's not a birth of a baby. He says what it produces is death. When our lust is conceived, it brings forth death. The word, when it says when sin is accomplished, the the Greek word used here means full grown. So it's not only the picture of a baby that is born, but it's as it matures into, uh, it's fully developed as a full grown man. It's in the aorist tense, so it pictures the process at the end. You know, when Adam and Eve were told, when you eat from that tree, you will surely die. They didn't drop dead at the moment they bit the apple. But they surely did die at that moment. The process was started. Conception had happened. And God says, there will be the birth which results in death. The Greek word thantos is death, and it means separation. That is the definition of death. When a human being dies, their eternal soul is separated from their physical flesh. That is the definition of death. There is separation. There is also a separation for us eternally. When, when physical death happens, there's the soul from the body separation. Spiritual death is the separation of the spirit of man from God because of our sin. Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. He says, when you sin, when, when our relationship is broken, there is separation of man's soul from God for all eternity. The eternal death is separation of man's soul from God. One way to avoid temptation is to take our eyes off the immediate pleasure that the bait seems to offer. You see, James is trying to get us to fast forward past the temptation to the consequence when it's fully grown. What person, when they look at a sin at the moment, if they fast forwarded the tape to, what is this going to cost me? What is this going to ultimately mean? Next time you're tempted to sin, I want you to whip out a piece of paper or pull up your iPad or your phone or something or do it mentally, but make two columns. And on one side, put, what will I gain 
from giving in to this temptation. And then on the other side put, what will I lose? What are the consequences that come? And as you list what you will gain, short-term pleasures, this or that, and you list the long-term things that can come as a result, you know what you will find? The columns do not add up. The consequence side will outweigh what you gain. And if you look at that long-term perspective of where is this sin going to ultimately lead, you would not do what you do. I mean, what fish, when that lure flashes by them, if they could fast-forward the tape and say, you know, when I bite into this, there's going to be this hook, and it's going to rip me out of the water, and I'm going to end up, you know, getting knocked on the head and then filleted, and I'm on somebody's plate, or I'm going to be mounted on a wall, and hmm, is that moment of tasty morsel worth this? No. It wouldn't bite it. No animal would go into the trap knowing it was going to result in its death. And what James wants us to do is reset our thinking. When that moment of temptation comes, he says, look ahead to the consequence. When lust is conceived, what will it give birth to? Your ultimate separation. That's what we need to remember. And as we think about this, James uses this process, and he says it takes many months to happen. You know, rarely does sin just happen. Sin rarely just occurs. It's often a long process of neglecting the right things and indulging in the wrong things. The Africans have a proverb. They say when two dogs get in a fight, the one that has been eating well wins. When two dogs get in a fight, the one that has been eating well wins. I want you to picture in your mind for a moment that a dog fight is going to happen. I know it's illegal. I'm not you know, promoting this. I just want you to think of a picture of two dogs that are going to be thrust into an arena... And, and, and go at each other. Now, one dog is this emaciated, starved type of dog. You picture a little teacup tea chihuahua. All right, you ever seen those little things? They shake and shiver. And, yeah, and if you have one, I'm sorry. I just want you to get this vivid picture <laughs> in your mind. Now, on the other side, there's a Rottweiler, a 150-pound, bulked-out big dog. And these two things are going to get in a fight. Which one will win? You know, the only way the, the Rottweiler loses if, is if it chokes on the Chihuahua while it's trying to swallow it, right? <laughs> and so the picture we have here is that our, our spiritual side for most of us at, at times in our life is this little, tiny, emaciated Chihuahua and our carnal dog. It's this bulked-out big Rottweiler. And the reason for that is, you know, our, our spiritual side is starving. We throw it a little snack every now and then. We come to church, you know, and we go, well, that's a big buffet. That'll last me two or three weeks at least. Um, you know, and so we, we fill up spiritually. Every now and then we flip through the Bible and we read it. We turn on, you know, um, uh, the radio and catch a, a good encouraging song or a, a thought for the day type of thing. But as you look at what you're feeding your spiritual side, compare that to the carnal side and how well it's eating. It's being bombarded every day. The stuff you see on billboards, the stuff you hear at work or in the halls at school, it's, it's what's on your computer, it's, what's, it's what you're reading, it's what you're, the culture is immersed in. And, and when these two dogs get in a fight, we go, why? Why does the spiritual side seem to lose more than it wins? And the reason is because when these two dogs get in a fight, the one that has been, been eating well wins. The victory is not decided at that moment per se, but it's been, what have we been doing to prepare for that moment of temptation? 
We need to turn the tide. We need to start feeding our spiritual side. Psalms 119, 9 through 11 says, How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your word. With all my heart I have sought you. Do not let me wander from your commandments. Your word I have treasured in my heart that I may not sin against you. Are you memorizing scripture? Are you immersing yourself in God's word and abiding in it? Are you growing and maturing? What are you doing to feed the spiritual side of your life? God says, here is the formula for success. Spend time in my word. Treasure it in your heart. Learn it. Live it. It will not only redirect your thoughts when you know God's word. It can cut off wrong things before they start. One of the verses I've memorized is Job 31.1. In Job 31.1, it says, I've made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a woman. And in those moments where I see something, where I find a woman attractive, where my mind wants to go where it should not, I immediately run that verse through my mind. The message version, a paraphrase of it says, I've made a solemn pact with myself never to undress a girl with my eyes. Whenever a woman catches my eye and I want my mind, says, let's linger over here, let's look, let's spend some time developing, you know, this this wrong thought, I immediately go, I've made a covenant with my eyes not to do this. Now, you also don't just stand there and say, I'm I'm not going to think lustfully as I'm looking at this girl. Uh, What God says is, there's the fire escape, get out of there. Turn around, look away, turn off the computer, shut down that thing. If you know every time you drive down the road, there's that billboard for that gentleman's club. What a stupid misnomer. You know, it's not a gentleman's club. It's a place of decadent sin. Then don't go that way. You know, what God says is, do not spend time there. One day I was in Target, you know, and I was walking down an aisle to get something. And and I came down the aisle and this woman comes down the other way and she's dressed in a way that there was just no way that my mind wasn't going to go, hmm. So I run this verse through my mind, and at the same time, I kind of turn around and I say, go back down the other way, don't pass her by. Well, as soon as I turned around, guess who was coming up the other side of the aisle? I don't know if it was her sister. It was another lady (laughs) that I said, this isn't going to end well either. So I immediately look down at the ground, and they have one of those lingerie ads (laughs) plastered on the floor. I took the little red basket I was holding. I literally dropped it on the floor, and I closed my eyes as best I could, and I said, I'm leaving. Walmart, here I come. I mean, I got out of there. (laughs) No temptation has seized you except what is common to man, Roger. But God says, there is a way of escape, and you better take it. Because when you go toe-to-toe, when you linger, you're going to lose. You know, there's a saying, we can't keep the birds of the air from flying over our heads, but we can keep them from nesting in our hair. And so the temptations will come in your life. But you have to ask yourself, are you accommodating it? Are you providing a place for it to to roost and to, to set up shop? And what James tells us is don't do that. Now, what do we do in those times where we didn't use God's escape plan? We didn't flee temptation. We, we fell into the temptation instead. Friends, in that moment, what I don't want you to do is to fall into the lie of our enemy. The father of lies will tell you, you know, God doesn't want anything to do with you anymore. You know, hey, Roger, you're a pastor. 
What if people knew about your sin? What, you know, do you really think you can stand up there today and, and preach from the pulpit and talk about fleeing temptation? You hypocrite. Look at all these. Let's, let's go back and review your life and, and all the times you haven't done what you're preaching about today. You know, God wants to tell us, you don't have to be a preacher. You're just a Christian. And he says, do you really want to show up in your Sunday school class, your ABF, your small group, to go to campus or your, your school and tell your friends about Jesus when, when you're, you're such a hypocrite? I mean, God doesn't want anything to do with you. How do you combat the enemy when he comes at us with a lie? You do it with the word of God. What does Romans 5, 8 tell you? But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Yeah, you're a sinner. Yeah, you're a wretched man. Paul said, wretched man that I am, who will save me from the body of this death? And then he says, thanks be to God because of Christ Jesus. God says, when you were a sinner, when you were at your worst, when you were far from him, when you were in rebellion, Christ came and he died on the cross to pay the penalty of sin. Do you remember Romans 6.23? The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And what God says to us is, in those moments where you've sinned, in those moments where you've fallen, you tell our enemy, Satan, God loves me. God died for me. We're coming to the communion table. And at the communion table, we are reminded of God's great love for us. That he died while we were sinners. That he died to pay the penalty of death that was sin. And friends, if you are here this morning and you are somebody who says, I'm far from God, I've made such a mess of my life, he doesn't want anything to do with me. I want you to look at the cross. And I want you to remember that it says he died for you while you were a sinner. And as you sit here this morning with your life as a mess and the sins you committed, maybe even this morning before you came to church, and you're saying, I don't even know why I'm here. You are here today to hear that God loves you. And he'll take you like you are this morning, but he doesn't want you to stay the way that you are. He wants you to turn from your sin and to turn to him, to accept Jesus as your personal savior. He died to pay the penalty of death for you. And as we come to this table today, you're about to hold a piece of bread, and what it represents is the body of Christ, the God-man who went to the cross to die for us. Why did Jesus come? Why did he go to the cross? Because every one of us, from Adam and Eve, to me, to you, to every man and woman who will ever walk this earth, other than the perfect God-man, we will sin. We will all owe that penalty of death. The only one who was holy and perfect was Jesus, which is why he came to pay the penalty he did not owe, so we could have the gift of life. So if you've never accepted Jesus, I invite you today to turn from your sin. Say, God, I've made a mess in my life. I've made mistakes. But I know that you loved me, you died for me, and today I accept your death in my place. Now, for the rest of us who have come to Christ in the past, we don't have to do that over and over. Because the Bible says once we are saved, our salvation is secure. And yet it says when we sin, and we will sin. First John one ten says, if we say that we are without sin, we make God a liar. And his word is not in us. But right before that, the verse says, when we sin, it tells us in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous 
to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So if you're a believer in Christ and you've committed sins this past year, this past month, maybe even in the last few moments, God says, lay them at the foot of the cross, nail them to the cross, confess them, and I will forgive you. I will cleanse you from all unrighteousness. The Bible asks us to come to this table with clean hands and hearts. So confess your sins. Use this time as the elements are passed to confess your sins to God. Thank him for the gift of new life. Men, will you serve us, please?
James told us that every perfect gift, every good and perfect gift comes from above. And as we look at this piece of bread in our hand, it represents the best and most perfect gift that was ever given. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. There was a chasm of sin that separated us from God. We had eternal death to look forward to, but God provided the cross, which became the bridge over the chasm. And when we place our faith and trust in Jesus, we walk across that bridge. We are no longer separated from God. Our earthly life will end one day, but our eternal life begins at that moment because of what Jesus did for us. The Lamb of God who died to take away the sin of the world, eat it in remembrance of him. And we hold in our hand a cup. It's simply grape juice, but it represents something so precious. The precious blood of the Lamb. The book of Hebrews tells us without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness for sins. We owed a penalty that had to be paid, which again is why Christ had to come. And he freely gave that gift to us of new life by letting his blood wash away my sins and yours. As you hold this cup in your hand, it represents God's great gift to you of new life. Drink it in remembrance of him. Join me, please, as we close in prayer. Lord God, we thank you for your great gift. We thank you for that gift of new life through your son, Jesus. Lord, we have an enemy who seeks to destroy. We have an enemy who is the deceiver who wants us to believe the lies of the world. Father, we thank you that to, to combat that, to show the lies, to shine the light into the darkness. It's your word which reveals to us your living word, Jesus. The one who came to die for us. We thank you, Lord, for your written word, which gives us what we need to combat the enemy. We pray, Lord, as those who belong to you, who have come to faith in Jesus, that as we walk out the doors today, we would be those who would be wise in how we walk that we would be those who would flee temptation when it, it shows up in our lives, that we would be those who would not only run from it, but that we would run to you and cling to the cross. Father, may we grow in our walk with you. May we mature as men and women. And would we not just stay safe in a holy huddle, but would we go into the world and share the good news with others who need to know your son. So Lord, send us out today as your ambassadors to go into the world and share the good news of how sin and death have been conquered by your son. We pray this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.